Okay, today we're in Chelsea Physic Garden. I'm here with Louisa Hooper. Welcome to the podcast, Louisa. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's lovely to catch up with you because we haven't seen each other for well over a year, maybe a year and a half. Yeah, no, it's really lovely to see you and lovely to be in Chelsea Physic Garden yes. as well. This is the Travelling Through Podcast. I'm your host, Emma, and today's guest is Louisa Hooper. Louisa works for the Kalus Gulbenkian Foundation. She is a great reader, loves to travel, and her interest in the environment is reflected in her thoughts of London, the world, and life. It's a little bit windy today, isn't it? Yeah, overcast, a bit windy, but spring is definitely yeah. on its way. Yeah. There's yeah. beautiful yellow forsythia up the, out there, and um, spring bulbs, daffodils are out. Yeah. Is this a favourite place of yours? Yeah, I'm very lucky to be a member, so particularly over the last year I've been coming much more frequently. Um, it's not far from where I live, so uh, yeah, really, um, I love gardens, so um, yeah, I know it feels like a real privilege to be able to come. Yes, and we know we're in London because we can hear the planes yes. going over <laughs> as we go. Should we wander this way? Yeah. In a yeah. Um, Are you all right that side? Yeah. yeah. Oh, maybe I should go... Th- the other side. Here we go. That's better. Yeah. Yes. Um, so, are you a Londoner, Louisa? I've never asked you that. Yeah. So, I'm a Londoner, born and bred. So, where were you born? So, I was born at the Whittington Hospital in Highgate, um, okay, in North London. And for most of my childhood, we lived in a suburb, a North London suburb, Whetstone, which is sort of the end of, almost the end of the Northern Line. Okay. Um, Totteridge and Whetstone. And I don't think I've ever been there, actually. No, it's right, right sort of on the edge in Barnet. Yeah, interestingly, I feel very, ident- or did feel very identified with being a North Londoner. Yes. Um, and um, moved sort of south of the river about, oh, about 15 years ago to live in Kennington. But I've recently discovered, been doing some family history, that actually whole generations of Hoopers lived in Lambeth. Um, oh really? So just, you know, streets away from where I'm living now, okay. which is really strange. Yeah, no, it's been been really interesting to, to go to in. actually find that, yeah, I've sort of got roots that go back certainly to the late um, 18th century. Yes. In London or sort of, sort of in Surrey as it was then. Um, yes. And also discovered a Norfolk connection which um, I didn't know anything about it, but when I mentioned it to my father, who's in his 80s now, yes. he said, oh yes, the Norfolk connection. Oh, really? <laughs> so apparently my grandfather used to go for summer holidays in Norfolk somewhere, and uh, this has sort of passed through the family history. So yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. To it, it's, it is nice, isn't it, when yeah. you research your, your history and you realise how intricate the family can be when you go back and... and and maybe maybe it helps you to understand why you are the way you are. I don't know whether the genes help that. Yeah, or not. no, I think it's really really interesting to think about that and um, like why. So the person who came from Norfolk was a you know woman, um, and she would have been in her twenties. Like, wh- why did she come yes. to London? And you know how like kind of imagining what the story is there. Um, and then so that's my father's son. My mother's family are all Jewish, so they were all early 20th century yes. uh, immigrants from Russia. So I haven't got f- sort of much beyond 
that when they arrived in the UK, um, which was sort of 1904 or something. Where, where did they side. come from? So one side came from, well, they, they talk about Russia, but I think Russia was a vast thing at, yeah. at the time. So I think one side came from the Ukraine. Okay. And the other from Latvia or Lithuania, somewhere sort of around. Oh, wow. Um, but, um, so that's going yeah. to be, you have to go there. Yes. <laughs> did, that, did that actually, was that one of the reasons you went across, well, did you go on, across yeah. Russia yes, for your trip, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, yes. yeah, so we took the Trans-Siberian from Moscow to Vladivostok yes. at the end of 2019. And yeah, I guess there's some sense of just being curious about what that part of the world is like, but haven't actually been to those specific areas. Um, have you been to the Ukraine? No. No. Yeah. no have you been? I, I've been just to the very western edge of it, to Lviv, if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, an amazing city. Is it? Yeah, yeah, yes. Big buildings, stone buildings, architecture is beautiful. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful place to visit. I think the rest of Ukraine. I mean, it's an incredible place, I think, but it's, it's, some, it's on my list to explore one day. <laughs> one day. Um, yeah, so, and your travels took you across Russia yep. on the Trans-Siberian. Yeah. And how did you find that? It was amazing. It was, yeah, it was just... So it takes about... If you didn't stop off anywhere, it takes seven days. Yes. But we stopped in three or four places along the way. And it, it's a bit like... The Trans-Siberian isn't one train, it's just a network of rail, so you can kind of get on and off and plan your trip, although you have to do it in advance. Yes. Um, and, I mean, it's a cliche, but they're just the scale of the place. And, and you keep changing, on the train you keep changing time zones, and um, each carriage there's a little list up of all the places it's going to stop, and there's a red line every time you're going to change a time zone. Oh my goodness. So it's a lot more sophisticated because I did the, did this in 2002, I think it was. And um, and there wasn't anything like oh, that. Really? We had no idea where we were or oh, where, we, yeah. where we were going. But um, um, did you go from Moscow to Vladivostok? Yeah. So we were coming the other direction oh, from okay. Ulaanbaatar, oh, from okay. Mongolia. Yeah, so, so yeah it's no, very, that must have been yeah. fascinating, yeah. So how many days did it take you then with so your stop-offs? Two weeks it took. Oh, um, wow. And, um, yeah, we stopped in Irkutsk. Oh, so uh, did I. Yeah, <laughs> did you go is, to Lake Baikal? Yeah, yes. yeah. Very amazing, it amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And it was cold because it was November. Yeah. It was very cold. And yes. um, the lake was just beginning to freeze over. Oh, wow. And amazing icicles at the edges. And... Um, yeah, extraordinary place. Because the, there are boats that go across, don't they? Yeah. But in the winter, obviously, they, no, they can't. that's right. Uh, yes. yeah. It's incredible. Um, it just totally freezes yeah, over. So. Yeah, yeah. I think it rained the whole time I was there. <laughs> <laughs> it was only for a few days. But, uh, right. No, it was snowing. And uh, Ikutsk was fantastic. We spent three days there, I think. Oh, did you? And, um, that's really fascinating. And that's got a Jewish signature. There was a whole sort of Jewish... Um, population there and there's a synagogue there from the 19th century which then became something else you know during okay. the Soviet era and um, I think they were called the Novemberists or yes. Decemberists. Oh Decemberists, <laughs> yes. Who um, tried to create a revolution in the early 19th century and then all got um, exiled 
to the area around Irkutsk and their wives petitioned the Tsar to go as well and he allowed them and they sort of set up this it's kind of the Paris of Siberia with all these sort of wives while their husbands were doing hard labor nearby and they really? yeah it's a fascinating yeah. story but yes um, I didn't realize that because we yeah. I mean when I went it was uh, you know Irkutsk was just really a landing point and then we just had two days in uh, in Lake Baikal and then we got back on the train so at that time you, we were put into a car when we arrived in Irkutsk and they locked the door so we couldn't get out oh, right. it was very oh, strange, strange. And, um, yeah but we, we survived <laughs> <laughs> we got to Lake Baikal and stayed with a local family oh, well. and then um, yeah, then got back on the train but so I missed out on all that learning about uh, the history yeah, of that so no, clearly I've got to go back again yeah no it's a, a really interesting city um, um, and then we stopped at Khabarovsk, or Khabarovsk, however you pronounce it, Yes. Um, which also, yeah, just for like one night, and then ended up in Vladivostok, and then originally we were thinking we would get the boat to Japan, but because it was winter, it would have just sort of taken too long and, and been too cold, I think, so we, we yeah. flew to Tokyo and um, immediately went north to Fukushima which is the area where I lived for two years when I first left university okay um, of course everyone's heard of Fukushima now yes, um, yes. because of the because of what happened but um, the place where I stayed was in the west so it's sort of very inland so quite a long way from the the coast and the the nuclear reactor and everything and yes. um, very rural area called Aizu and um, Aizu yeah okay so we took the bullet train north and the Shinkansen and then the person who was my homestay when I was you know kind of 20 when I first I've kept in touch with and so she she's now in her 70s so she picked us up oh how lovely um, and we went and stayed with her and her husband. Her husband's now the mayor of the town. Shall we sit here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yes. So, um, and she's a tea ceremony master. That's fantastic. So we stayed a few days with them, um, which was lovely, and we saw kind of various people that I'd known, and uh, you know, they're just amazingly welcoming. Yes. But it's interesting. They don't generally have central heating in Japanese houses, so the room that we were sleeping in wasn't heated <laughs> we'd gone through the whole of Siberia <laughs> and been fine and then we were just so cold were you really? <laughs> so the, the the trains obviously are, are very well heated yeah, inside, yeah, uh, as you yeah, go across yeah. obviously you have to be with yeah, it across the, yeah. the the, the uh, trans-siberian train and it was did they have those big what are they called samakoi you know the big tea yeah, is it samabar, samabars, samabars that's yeah. right yes the big yeah. tea urns at the end of each carriage. Yeah, that you yeah, yeah. Um, and then going on the bullet train, which is a different kind of modern. Yeah. Were, was there a big difference between traveling on those two networks or did you find both? Yeah, so Japan, Japan's interesting because it's got the, sort of the bullet train and it's incredibly efficient and fast and well organized. And, but there are also these tiny little rural trains that yes. go kind of in the middle of nowhere and sort of chug along. So it's got a whole sort of spectrum. I think the um, 
Trans-Siberian is, it's sort of very official and managed, isn't it? Yeah. You get sort of, you get your, your carriage. Yeah. And you're not really supposed to go into anyone else's carriages. No. And, and also when you get off at the stations, they say don't cross the tracks because another big train, you know, if another train comes in, that's it. You're, you, you won't get onto your train, so you could easily miss it. Yeah, it was, we tried actually, because we then, you know, went on to other places. Wherever we could, we tried to go by train and it was interesting to see the, the differences. And, yes. Um, they're all better systems than the British trains, I yeah. have to say. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> I think that's probably not saying too much. Yeah, no. And they are getting more modernised. Yeah, so no are. disrespect to no, the British no, railway system. No, no. And then, could you speak? Can you speak Japanese? So I can speak some Japanese, kind of enough to get on trains and buy tickets and talk about the weather. And okay. um, um, yeah, I can't really read Japanese. Um, and actually, I've been trying recently just to sort of try and get up my. Chinese characters and Japanese got three systems for writing. There's a kind of an alphabet equivalent called hiragana and then the same again but for foreign words called katakana and then there are all the Chinese symbols as well. So okay. it's, it's quite a feat to sort of know enough to be able to read a newspaper for example. Right. Um, kind of 12 years in the education system Japanese kids learn enough to yeah to be able to sort of read read the newspaper yeah so it's quite a commitment um, but I've been trying to a little bit more get my reading but because I think that was the thing we found this time though it's harder to eat like go into restaurants and things because you actually can't tell from outside what kind of a restaurant it is oh really you know because yeah. you can't read anything yeah um, yes so you're going purely so, by a visual yeah yeah um so yeah so that's that's what i've been doing recently but yeah i can speak enough to get by and um when we were in staying with my friends in this place in aizu nishi aizu it's called because, yes, one of them, the husband is the mayor of the town, we had to go and do official greetings with the mayor. <laughs> so even though we were sort of staying with him and, you know, kind of on the Monday morning, we had breakfast with him and then he went off to work. We then had a sort of official greetings where we were taken to the town hall and um, met him officially. <laughs> How lovely, though. And, um, I suppose that must have been very new for your for your husband to, yeah, to go so to. Was, so. Yeah, so he was yeah, a bit sort of bemused, I think. <laughs> and, um, and because it's a very small town, it has its own little cable television station. And so the mayor just sort of told his assistant that they should get the, the cable TV in. So five minutes later, because that literally sort of in the next door building, reporter with a camera came and then started asking me questions in Japanese about, you know, what I remembered about my time there. So I suddenly found myself having to summon enough Japanese to answer <laughs> these, these questions. questions. <laughs> oh, good for you. <laughs> and that's when I realised that, you know, I can get by with sort of very simple stuff, but anything complex is a bit of a challenge. And then the next day, this little news item with me meeting the mayor was on the, the local. Oh, lovely! Cable <laughs> well, I TV suppose it's a bit, a, a, so bit, a big thing that that somebody who 
was there so many years ago has actually come back yeah, to see it, especially so. with all that the the area has yeah, has has, has yeah, had to cope with. Yeah, so, so. Yeah. And has it changed a lot as a result of? So that I mean, it's quite far away from where the sort of main impacts were. So I think it wasn't obvious to me that 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 area had changed. I think actually, strangely, what had happened was more people had moved in to mm -hmm. that that particular area. So it suffers as a lot of rural Japan does from depopulation. Mm -hmm. um, and I think after, you know, because families obviously couldn't live on the coast anymore. Yes. Um, they did actually, you know, some people moved back with into into the area with their families. But yeah, no, it wasn't it wasn't obvious. So it's it's a nuclear fallout, isn't it? For how long are, can they not go back? Is it? Yeah, no. How many decades yeah, does it take to recover? Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the sad things that because it now Fukushima is associated with that kind of nuclear hazard. I mean, the the area where I lived is is very much it's a rice farming area, um, and so there's this kind of Japanese are not that keen to eat products from Fukushima because right. of that association even though mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this region is actually quite a long way away from that area so yeah um, yeah oh, okay. challenging yeah no yeah. definitely so actually that nicely kind of ties in with with your environmental interests shall we say with the work that you do with the it's the Kalust Gulbenkian Foundation uh, and, and you're a senior project Pro program manager yeah. program manager yeah. um how did you get into that role of the of environmental <laughs> issues is it completely accidentally yeah. <laughs> maybe first i should say i have to admit not knowing much about the foundation and who kalus gulbenkian was mm -hmm. but uh, he was armenian yeah originally was, yeah so yeah. he was an armenian born in the sort of 1870s um, in Turkey, which was then part of the Ottoman Empire. He was from a wealthy merchant family, but he was a brilliant engineer and um, he did a sort of walking tour of what then became sort of the Middle East. Sort of, and I just understood what role, this kind of turn of the 20th century, what, what role oil was going to play. Yes. And he kind of negotiated all the oil rights between the Ottoman Empire and then all the you know, the UK and the US and Holland and Russia. And he was called Mr. 5% because he originally got 5% for of all the sort of oil rights of carving up the Middle East. Oh, oil. really? So that's where he made, made his money. And he was like the kind of a, when he died, he was one of the sort of richest men in the world. Um, he died in the 1950s and He'd been educated in London, went to King's, and then he lived most of his life in Paris. Mm -hmm. But then during the Second World War, because of the fall of the occupation of France, he decided he was going to go to America. And at the time, you had to, the only way you could do that was via Lisbon, mm -hmm. uh, which was neutral, supposedly. So he got to Lisbon and he, he basically stayed. And he loved it so he much. Just yes. loved it. Well, Lisbon's they, beautiful. Yeah. I don't blame him actually. <laughs> then, um, you know, they made it very comfortable for him, and um, he, he lived the last fifteen years of his life in Lisbon, and 
when he died, he he left most of his fortune to setting up a foundation, which then became based in 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 Portugal in Lisbon, um, but has always had an a London office and a Paris office, kind of reflecting his own history. Yes. So it's a big foundation. If you're ever in Lisbon, it's really worth going to. It's got lovely gardens, and there's a concert hall there, a modern art gallery. There's a gallery that a museum that's based on his collection. He was a great collector. Yes. Um, it's got beautiful things in it. There's a science institute. Um, so it's a really, really big institution in, in um, Portugal, it's sort of everyone's heard of, knows about the Gulbenkian Foundation there. Yes. Um, and then it also has some grant funding programmes and that's principally what the UK office does. It has three grant funding programmes, one of those in the arts which is all around the civic role of arts, so it's about encouraging arts organisations to kind of t really take on a, a civic role in mm -hmm. their communities. Yes. And then there are two sort of environment grant funding programmes. So there's the ocean work called Valuing the Ocean, which I've yes. been managing for the last few years. Yes. And then we're just beginning a new climate programme, okay. um, which is sort of in its very early stages. But they're both really focused on how you communicate more effectively, mm -hmm. why these things matter, um, yes. and what, what can be done. So... And very topical for the moment. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. very much so. Um, and how... So, so the ocean one, you're specifically looking at uh, the waters, the, the sea, the oceans around the UK, or is it more... or is it globally as well, and how it, our impacts? Yes, it's both. It began in 2013, and um, we sort of did what we call a scoping study, looking at what, like, what were the challenges, what needed to happen, uh, what were the issues, you know, where our resources could be best used. Yes. And um, and what that that research showed was that there, you know, things like climate change and uh, overfishing and pollution were were kind of key issues. But sort of underneath it all was problem that people really didn't understand why the ocean mattered. Mm -hmm. um, really? As simple as that? Yeah, yeah, so really communicating what what the ocean does and why it's important that it's healthy and functioning yes. um, more effectively was a kind of key underpinning piece. And also that people, uh, like the vast amounts of the ocean is un, uh, kind of unknown. But a lot is known, but, but the sort of knowledge is very siloed. So people weren't necessarily working very effectively across disciplines okay. in order to sort of make the most. Of. So we focused the work actually rather than on a particular issue, on, on these two kind of underlying approaches, which was about communicating more effectively and collaborating more effectively. Yeah. Um, so how is a, as, a, as an individual looking at how could I help or, or, or what, what do I need to, what do I need to understand more to then initiate the way I do things or, or the way I live? Yeah, so it's, I think it's really interesting because what a lot of the, the kind of communications research shows is that it's, it is about individual behaviour change and that's you know, going to be a big part of what needs to happen. But actually it's about, in order to um, kind of motivate people and make people feel that they have a role to play and that 
they can be effective. They need to understand what the, how the system needs to change. Yes. So it's about what government needs to do, it's about what business needs to do. Mm -hmm. And so helping people understand what the connections, or A, what, what needs to happen, but also then who needs to really be doing that in order for, for the system to evolve is, is a key part of it. So one of the projects I, that I'm just thinking about London that, that we have supported, we, we set up this collaboration of organisations working together that all brought different skills. Mm -hmm. um, so some of them were marine conservation organisations, but some of them had expertise in the law or in economics or communications. And different initiatives came out of, have come out of this collaboration. One of them is called One Less. It's the One Less Bottle campaign. Okay. And it's focused on London. And it looks at London, what it did was, and this was just before the sort of big explosion of interest and focus on plastic pollution. Um, it looks at London as a system and asks the question, what would need to happen in London? What would need to change in London for London to go single use plastic water bottle free yes and so it kind of matched the system and tried to understand it and then looked at all the things that needed to change so that's kind of the policy changes it's individual behavior it's business behavior and also really trying to connect people in a place like London obviously a big urban environment yes to a sense of their connection to the sea okay so all the communications um, and messaging have been about London on sea. Oh, um, really? They, Interesting. They've got a brilliant logo, which is like a whale, with, which is holding up the um, London Eye and the sort of um, the gherkin and things. So it's it's showing how the sea is underpinning, you know, kind of London. Yes. Um, and rather than sort of um, trying to influence people by talking about plastic pollution. And waste they very much talked about that sort of connection to the sea to see if that can motivate people and they found that it does so as a result of this it began in 2016 and the idea was to influence the then mayoral elections yeah, um, yeah. and initially Sadiq Khan when he was a candidate was not interested at all but they really worked well and they managed to influence all of the sort of policy around plastic bottles and pollution in London so that the mayor committed five million pounds to setting up water fountains and actually you'll, if you yes, go to places true. Yes. around London you'll see um, one less water fountains, there's one outside the Tate, yeah. Tate Modern. Because yes. um, yeah. the We Are Waterloo business improvement yeah, group, yeah. They, they also yeah. had a and big they, strategy towards it. They set up a peer network. Um, one less peer network, so lots of businesses and places like Borough Market and then institutions like Natural History Museum and um, Business Improvement Districts have all become part of this peer pioneer network, yes, um, yeah. looking at not only how they can reduce use of single-use plastic water bottles, but sort of plastic, single-use plastic across their sort of supply yeah. chain yeah um, so it's had this big kind of snowball effect That's interesting. Um, but really trying to look at the whole thing as a system and how you can influence the system 
So one thing that people can do is yes. the next, the mayoral elections are coming up again yes. in May. Yes. And um, so one of the things they're trying to do is influence the candidates to take on some of the recommendations to kind of maintain yeah. um, the, the policies momentum. and yeah. the momentum. Yes. Um, so you can be asking candidates what their views and policies are on issue of uh, single-use plastic pollution, but also other environmental issues. Of course, um, yes. And in fact, there's going to be a green hustings online on the 12th of April, I think. We'll put the links in the in the show notes so people can yeah, check that out yeah, if they um, get people yeah. engaged. Because I think, I mean, we all think we're trying to do our bit, but the bigger issue is businesses should be doing more and countries, governments should be doing more. But it's, I think it's good to know that as individuals, we can also do yeah, more yeah. Uh, and that that it does matter yeah, uh, yeah no, because sometimes we get you, you can get so overwhelmed that w what does it matter if I buy plastic bottles of water because the businesses and the governments aren't actually doing their bit but by understanding that actually it does matter and it does it does make a difference yeah, yeah. Um, then we should all be engaged engaged more yeah, yeah. I mean I think how does how does the the foundation see sort of the the, the roles of Greta Thunberg, for example? Is, is she having yeah. an impact on how you also engage, or are you using her as a model also? Yeah, I think she's really interesting. So um, in Lisbon, they set up a a million euro prize for for action on climate change, and um, the first one was last year, and Greta Thunberg won it. Okay, and so that money is going to kind of foundations that she's involved in um, but actually you know personally I think and and from the sort of communications research I think there's quite a, an interesting issue around that because the, the the research shows really clearly if you just go on about the crisis it's really demotivating yeah because you suddenly um, you're overwhelmed with everything that's wrong that what can we do to help? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and people f feel yeah, powerless, like it's too late as well. And so actually we need to be, it, much, it needs to be very solutions focused. It needs to be, people need to kind of realise the things that are all the kind of amazing stuff that is already happening, because mm. there is, is amazing stuff happening. And it, it needs to be just couched much more in that sort of, um, Kind of positive we can do this and actually these are the things that are already happening so um, looking at something like one less the the business pioneer network you know and not just individual organizations but through their own supply chains they're having an amazing impact and one of the organizations that are part of it are the foreign and commonwealth office i think just through a connection that someone had yes and now all the all the sort of embassies around the world Mm. British embassies are looking at their plastic in their supply chain and okay so, so that's good yeah, yes so and it's really a knock-on effect if one does it then they go well why are you doing yeah, that and then yeah. another one will try yeah, and you yeah. have the Mexican wave effect yeah, absolutely, almost yeah, yes so. it must be very challenging but also step by step rewarding yeah, yeah. it's, it's real and the organizations and the people that are involved that are the really doing the NGOs that are sort of doing the work and coming up with the campaigns just amazing people so it feels a real privilege to be, do, be able to do a little bit which is like enable 
small, relatively small amounts of funding to go towards these organisations and issues. Um, and it is really urgent. Um, yes, yeah. And I mean, the ocean is fundamental to the way the climate works. So that's the other, one of the things that we're really focused on at the moment is trying to kind of communicate the idea that the ocean and climate are part of one integrated system. Mm -hmm. um, and so in order to tackle climate change, you need a healthy ocean. Yes. Um, and so you need solutions that are good for climate and the ocean, because actually it's part of the same thing. Um, so really being able to take a holistic view Mm -hmm. is going to be critical. Yes, um, it's like everything. If you just focus on one thing, you get you lose sight of the the whole picture, yeah. and you need everything in in balance to work absolutely. together to make yeah. it to have a proper sustainable end result. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Very easy to say when yeah. we just <laughs> much harder to do in yeah. in practice. Yeah. But it's good to hear that there's there's um, progress and pe uh, lots of people out there wanting yeah, to, no. to to push this agenda yeah. forward and, and, and have the money to be able to support uh, projects yeah. like, like this. Yeah. So. And it's a big year as well. We've got obviously the UK is hosting the climate conference at the end of the year in November. Yeah. We're also hosting the G7 summit in July. So lots of the um, environmental organisations are, are kind of going to use those opportunities to say in the UK, we want to be a leader in this, and so we need to be doing these things yes. at home in order to show that leadership to the world. Um, you know, yes. yeah. so. so there'll be a spotlight, and it's it's an opportunity as as well to yeah. to influence yeah, a lot of bigger things. Yeah. Okay, so. Also, you, you're not from an environmental no. background. You're from a very literature, yes, or literal, <laughs> literally literature <laughs> background. Yeah. Um, so, on that note, what's um, what kind of literature is it that you that you love to read? And I love good stories. I love novels. I love poetry. When I was younger, I used to, I loved all the Victorian, big Victorian novels. You know, sort of Middlemarch and. Um, yes. Um, Tolstoy, War and Peace, you know, and then it seemed like you had the time to read those then. I think recently, so I love, you know, really sort of brilliantly written stories, but also that somehow kind of give you insight into people's lives and the way you need to live your, or not need, but you kind of just thinking about, yeah, kind of how you should live your life. And things that I've read recently that I've loved. So I read um, Toni Morrison's Beloved, uh, yes, yeah. which I never read at the time when it came out, but I just read it last year and it just blew me away. I thought it was just amazing. Yeah, I, yeah. I still haven't read it. It was one of one very popular book actually in, in the bookshop yeah. and it became popular because one customer came and saying, have you got a copy of Beloved? And, um, and I did and it drew attention, my attention to it as, as well. Uh, and it seemed because that one customer came in, I then had a whole stream of people coming and buying mm. that book. And I don't know, <laughs> don't know why, whether, whether also Toni Morrison, there was a spotlight on her or, and, yeah, and her yeah. writings. She died quite recently yeah. as well. So maybe because of that. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one, of, one the, book yeah, that so has... Yeah, so that was one book. And I love, you know, people like Haruki Murakami. Um, just trying to think of other... Have ones related to your environmental 
kind of interests. Yeah, is there something I, along that line? I, I, I remember that you coming in and buying Robert McFarlane. No, that's right, Robert McFarlane. His, <laughs> his Lost Words is absolutely just stunning. And it's done amazing things. You know, they've, they managed to raise funding to give it to lots of schools across the UK. Did and, they? Yeah, okay. So, um, it's really sort of created a whole movement around around it. And yeah. Sort of the, and I think that's that's really interesting. The, the relationship between language and the environment, um, mm. how language holds knowledge about the environment. I remember not something we ever funded, but in the Amazon there's um, an organisation that was devoted to preserving the kind of local Amazon languages because actually the knowledge of the Amazon jungle was held in the languages. Um, Interesting, know, yeah. So, um, actually that's one of the things I love about London is the way the layers of history are held in the street names. And Definitely, you know, yes, um, yes. You've got, you know, where I live in Kennington there's Black Prince Road and that's because the Black Prince Palace was there in 13 something or other. So, yeah, that sense of the layers of history held by the language and the names. Yes, they, they hint at it now and, and you, yeah. have to, you have to go and look it up because yeah. even though it may be lost uh, visually, it's still there in written form yeah. somewhere, isn't yeah. it, quite often. Yeah. So. Well, I suppose not in the Amazon, not in the jungle. No. <laughs> it's all very much word, but it's also through stories, isn't yeah. it? And, how, and if you don't yeah. understand the language, you won't understand the stories that have come down. Yeah, no, that's thinking who else I... So there's a writer who's a poet, um, but also a short story writer, David Constantine, who's he's a brilliant, brilliant poet and short story writer. Okay. Um, and his... I think one of the things I like is where literature somehow... Magic realism is a kind of too strong, but somehow it walks the line between kind of everyday life and something that's beyond everyday life mm -hmm. um, and that's a sort of there's a kind of magical possibility that's sort of just beyond something that you can touch and literature somehow kind of captures that um, yes yes which I really really yeah. like I guess Haruki Murakami does that quite a bit yes um, oh. we read yeah. one of his books didn't we for our traveling through book club as well yeah. one about the sheep yeah, yeah, the wild sheep chase. That's yeah, right, the wild yeah. sheep. And actually, that was the first Murakami book mm. that I read, and I actually really enjoyed it. Because it is very different to anything else I had read before. So, but obviously, that's your connection to Japan yeah, too, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. So, are there, are there certain books that have influenced you to travel to certain places as a result of reading them? It's really. Good or does question. it go round? Or is it the other way round? Are you? Are you? Sort of drawn towards a place and then through reading you, you say right that is, I do want to go there yeah I think it's more more like that I sort of ended up going to Japan slightly again accidentally when I was in my last year I studied English at university and um, I just didn't know what I was going to do with it <laughs> as, as you don't <laughs> um, and there was an advert one day for this What's, it's called the JET program, Japanese Exchange and Teaching Program, um, mm -hmm. and you could apply and go to Japan for a year and teach English, and so that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. But having been there, I then read lots of Japanese literature. So I think it's yeah, it's more sort of I go somewhere and then look for the literature that helps you sort of understand the culture more. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
your travels went from Japan, you went on to New Zealand and, and was it to Singapore you went? Also? Yeah, so we went to New Zealand and then Australia and then the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Got family in New Zealand, so that was lovely just to sort of catch up with people. And it's, it's a beautiful country. And when you go to places now, do you, do you go to places with your environmental eyes wide open uh, or do you switch off when you're tra when you're traveling uh, so on this trip I sort of had a three month sabbatical trip and part of the kind of the argument for going was to have slightly to do some sort of work related things so we went to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia and oh, beautiful. got to see yeah. sort of what's left which yeah. is amazing and then went to the Philippines to specifically um, catch up with some work that the Zoological Society of London have been doing um, in the Philippines with local communities again have created this amazing sort of circular economy project originally around plastic fishing nets um, so the local fishermen collect them and then they sort of develop this very simple technology for bailing them up and then they develop this relationship with a global carpet tile manufacturer Oh, wow. So the, the fishing nets get um, sold to this, yeah, this global company and then the money goes back into the local community and um, has enabled all sorts of other things to happen in these That's really, really poor communities. Yes, yes. And then they've sort of ex now extended the model to seaweed farming, so they're developing new and more sustainable type seaweed farming in these areas. I uh, saw this happening when we, we last, or 2019 now, uh, when we were walking the Portuguese Camino, that they were raking mm. up the seaweeds. Uh -huh. I don't know whether that's come from there or is it... Uh, well, that, yeah, I think it just globally there's much more recognition of what a sustainable and useful product seaweed is. Yes. Um, and in the, in the Philippines, people are, because the, the areas have been so overfished and it's so impacted by climate change that you know communities that completely relied on fishing you know they just they can fish all day and get you no know, fish at all really and, wow you know, people are really it's very very challenged um, and so London Zoo have been working with these communities that they now you know they've been working there a long time and they know them well to establish these seaweed farms in order to kind of diversify their incomes and produce something that you know that they can live from. Yeah, so we actually got to um, spend a couple of days with the team in the Philippines oh, team. Yes. And visited, they took us out on these tiny little boats and uh, showed us the seaweed kind of their slightly offshore, these seaweed farms. Where was it actually in, uh, up the coast then? To where were you in the Philippines? Uh, so was we were in an, on an island called Bohol, which is okay. like sort of in the central. Because there's about a um, hundred islands, yeah, isn't there? Just, Cause, yes, because yeah, yeah. I, I forget the name of the place. I'm sure it began with B. So it was his, the King's Summer Palace area. And then you could take little boats out to all these islands and they said which island would you like to go to <laughs> oh, I don't I don't know but he took us to one that was just completely isolated there was no one else there but but us yeah, and it was incredible yeah, yeah. it's a stunning place yeah. yeah but here this is one of the islands yeah, where they do the this is one the... of the islands yes yeah. yeah so we spent two days sort of um, 
we stayed in this tiny little hut on this tiny little <laughs> island and um, took these little boats out and visited the seaweed farms and the local communities and saw sort of how they were collecting the fishing nets and um, recycling them. Um, it was really, it was kind of fascinating, very humbling as well. You yes, know. yeah. Um, and the, the way London Zoo originally got involved in this region was they, about 20 years ago, they set up a, a marine protected area for these little seahorses. Mm -hmm. So we got, so they took us night watch, you have to go at night, um, snorkeling for, to look at these seahorses. Oh, amazing. So we were like in, just off this little island in the middle of, of the, see um, going snorkeling at night it was pretty terrifying actually was it? but um, I'm not the strongest swimmer so and it's very it was actually very shallow so I don't think anything too but, but you can't stand because um, because of all the coral that you don't want to stand on and of course um, yeah. uh, destroy and we had two guides um, who were kind of swimming off and showing us these little little seahorses. Sea Do they glow in the, in the dark then? Or is no, it just because, so they had poor old seahorses, they had torches yes. so they could show us. But actually the most amazing bit for me was like when I could relax and just lie on your back and you're like in the dark sea and the amazing stars just really? in the whole canopy oh, of stars. Fantastic. So, yeah, it was really special. It's little moments like that which it's the camera in your mind yeah. that you that is greater than any any physical camera yeah, taking photographs because yeah, it stays yeah. with you forever, doesn't yeah. it? So yeah, and then we went to yeah our final place was Singapore, but by that time coronavirus had caught up with us. Oh, had it really? So we were going to stay with some friends, and um, they couldn't meet us because we'd been we'd had to sort of go via Hong Kong at one point, and because we'd been in China our friends couldn't in Singapore the, the rules by that stage this was right at the beginning of February last year um, the rules in Singapore were such that they couldn't meet us because they would have had to have gone into quarantine right um, and so and we could sort of it was really clear you know having been in the Philippines and coronavirus was going to be a really serious thing was it? yeah so we decided clear in, clear in what way because in the Philippines over the two weeks that we were in the Philippines by the, the sort of beginning of the second week, hotel you couldn't register at hotels unless you'd had your temperature taken. Oh gosh, and, yeah. Right. Yeah. So they were so well they ahead were, of us and all those kind yeah. of restrictions and putting um, and Singapore's very sort of regulated place anyway and they were very anxious about yes. about it. And we decided to cut our trip short by just a few days and um, Really, we just sort of could see that you could end up getting caught, you know, not being able to um, get home because of it. So, yes. So we, yeah, we got back in early February. Just so was that? We so literally, it was just a few days short of your yeah, your three months yeah. away. So you were very we were lucky. lucky. Yes. Yeah. Wow. I didn't realise it was that tight. So of course, I mean, obviously in Asian countries as well, they've been hit by SARS and other serious viruses spreading across their, their country so they're more aware and of how quickly these things can can, can get out of hand so yeah. so here we are back yep. in London or here you are back in London but working from home yeah and so has, has that impacted you how 
yeah, you know, physically and, and mentally, or has it been a case that you've just because you're right in the centre of London anyway? I mean, how? Yeah, what are what what have the challenges been for you? So in lots of ways, it's just been really, really lucky because we've got enough space at home. We've got a little garden, um, and actually, it's quite nice not having to commute. Um, but after a while, and we, you know, like my, we're a small team um, at the Gulbenkian in London, and we have daily catch-ups, first thing. Um, but after a while, you do begin to miss just that sort of the casual exchange that you have in an office with yes. your colleagues. Um, I think it will be nice when we do go back to the office not to go back all the time, but at least like one or two days a week. I yeah, think. yes. Um, a lot of people have got very settled in having days working from home yeah. and realised how how nice that is. Yeah, <laughs> no, definitely. Not having yeah. the commute and using those hours more effectively yeah. or efficiently, should yeah. we say. Yeah, so certainly being as busy, if not busier, and working longer hours. And it's quiet and you can focus, you know, on ex apart from all the Zoom <laughs> calls, yes, you know, you, yeah. you can sort of spend hours and hours. You can get very screen. distracted by looking at screen time. Mm. I mean, that's, I think, probably the hardest thing for people is, well, for some people, screen time is just part of daily life and was before, but for others, it's been much harder to have to spend so much time looking at screens yeah, and yeah. how that's going to affect our eyesight yeah, as well going I know, forward. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, because normally we'd have meetings and then you wouldn't be looking at a screen, but yeah. but now everything is via the, via the screen. Yeah. So when, when things hopefully get back to normal, uh, where where in London would you like to, where, where in London have you missed going to in this time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think some of the other, you know, like parks and places like Kew Gardens I love. Um, yes. That I haven't been to much. And also just actually just wandering around the shops, just yeah. doing a bit of window shopping and, yeah, you know, just yeah. a sense of... And the theatre. It's interesting, I've been reading a book that's sort of collection of people's diary entries across a year in London, across the centuries. And the number of times people, you know, whether it's the 17th century or the 20th century, talk about going to the theatre, and you realise that the theatre is sort of fundamental to the DNA of London. Definitely, somehow. yes. Yeah, and I, yeah, I mean, it's because there are so many theatres in London yeah. and so many shows going on, yeah. Can you, the impact it's had on so many people as well. I know they've tried to put things online, but it's not quite no, the same, is it? No. So, and you, your heart goes out to those who are yeah. really suffering because they, they can't all be online, yeah. can they? Yeah. So the sooner theatres can get back yeah. to and the arts generally get yeah. back to normal yeah. would be a, yeah. a good thing for yeah. for them significantly so and for us for, yes. our, for our mental health <laughs> yes. as well going abroad if you could if everything opened up tomorrow have you somewhere that you you want to go first yes yeah, so i think there are two two places so one is so my husband lived in greece for a few years in yes. athens so i think we just love to i think we're missing europe We'd love to just go to Greece and, you know, just be quiet somewhere, somewhere beautiful and warm. Um, yes. So that's one. I normally, because obviously the foundation's Portuguese, I'm normally going to Lisbon a few times a year. Yes. Um, so it'd be lovely to be able to 
to go back. Do you like the pastel donatas? I love pastel <laughs> donatas. They're not the same here, no, are they? You have to get a proper Portuguese one yeah, to really appreciate yeah, them. Yeah, fantastic coffee and yeah. wine and actually all the cakes in, <laughs> in this winner. Um, so, yeah, and then I think, depending on what happens next year, thinking about going back to Japan, okay, maybe for two or three months, just to um, spend a bit more time there. Yes. Your love affair with Japan <laughs> continues. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Um, yes. And then there are whole parts of the world that I've never been to, like South America and things, so maybe one day. Yeah, <laughs> yes. It's a big world out it there, is, isn't it? it? Is. <laughs> so, yeah. We can't see it all in no. our lifetime, however much we would like to. <laughs> yeah. So here we sit, it's a bit windy and cold, it is. isn't it, for us <laughs> for a spring day. Apparently next week it's going to be 22 degrees, which seems ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, we're sitting here shivering a bit, <laughs> but it's beautiful being in the, in the, in the Chelsea Physic Garden. So if, if, uh, if people listening haven't been, do come. Yeah, no, do. It's a beautiful yeah. space. It's quite a small space, yeah. but it's beautifully laid out. And I expect as spring really springs forth, it will be lovely, but it's nice coming at this time of year with the hellebores and yeah, stuff. So. Yeah. But um, on a final environmental note, yeah. Louisa, <laughs> if you could offer one piece of advice to, to me and to, to the listeners about what, what they could start doing or even a question that we should be asking ourselves to help the environment, what would it be? So the, one of the things about lockdown is people have really appreciated more or, or recognise more their sense of connection to the natural world and I yeah. think let's really build on that and do things that can help us realise the benefits and so whether it's nurturing uh, you know your basil pot in your yes. on your windowsill or whether it's volunteering to do cleaning up the foreshore of the Thames which is doing beach cleans or um whether it's doing your bit of recycling, just kind of doing it with that sense of kind of love and benefit and how you're connected to both the natural world and to everyone else. It feels that's that's kind of message of connection is a real lesson that we've learnt from the last year. And yeah. Let's build on that. Yes, yeah. yes. Good piece of advice, <laughs> I think. And I think now that spring's coming, people are planting yeah. seeds, and that's a great way. Just having a couple of pots on your on your window yeah. ledge, that everybody can do that, yeah. uh, or even have them in, you know, inside or outside. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's just the little things, isn't yeah. it? You feel that you are doing something. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Louisa. It's been <laughs> so <laughs> lovely talking to you, and, and just learning a little bit more about your life too. Which, when people came into the shop, you just get snippets, but you never really knew. What, what you really were about and yeah I definitely remember, remember you coming into the shop and and it was all it was very much you were you would come and you'd scan the bookshelves particularly at Christmas time yeah. for for books that you were going to come back and buy yeah. <laughs> so that was always lovely I always used to see you on Christmas Eve I think yeah. it was for the yeah, five years it. that yeah, we were yeah, there yeah so um very much so hopefully we'll see you at the next book club if yeah. I if I hopefully make it because <laughs> I think they've just chosen a book which is about food. British food. That's yes, right, so yeah. I, I will be uh, putting that up on the on the traveling through website too. But yeah. um, but to all our podcast listeners out there, I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, the show. Hope you've enjoyed listening <laughs> to our little chat here and you've been inspired. I certainly have. If you've enjoyed it, please share with your friends. 
please leave us a review and a rating that would be really helpful and subscribe if you can but for now enjoy your weekend your week coming up uh, take care and thanks for listening